2: From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, Bon
3: Appetit's Alex Beggs tells us about the best cookbooks of 2020. We got the recipe for pepperoni rice stuffed mussels, which is like, like, come on, that just sounds so good.
2: Plus, what is the perfect number of episodes you got to watch in order to know if a show is good? A serious TV nerd has done that research.
4: I don't think episode four is too heavy a lift, you know? At the most, that's uh, a weekend of watching, you know?
2: But first, let's talk about what people are talking about with two great guests. First up is Leor Gugliel. He is a staff writer for The Chicago Reader and a freelancer specializing in music, arts and pop culture. Lior, welcome.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
2: Thanks for coming on. We also have Jonklin Hill. She's a senior producer for the NPR show 1A and host of the phenomenal podcast Through the Cracks. JQ, welcome back. It's great to be back. Okay, so obviously there is a global pandemic. It comes with lots of medical concerns, but a new one is from a study out this week. It says in general, everyone's blood pressure has increased, especially for women. This is like just really terrible news and it just keeps going. Another surprising side effect of the pandemic is that there is a maple syrup shortage. Consumption was up during lockdown. It's also tied to climate change. Apparently, supply has dwindled so much that Quebec is tapping into its strategic reserve i just think this is a fascinating story for a number of reasons partly just because like maple syrup strategic reserve um but it got me wondering like do y'all think your maple syrup consumption has increased during
5: the pandemic leor
1: uh it's hard to say uh my girlfriend is from vermont and so we have we have a guy we have a supplier
5: (laughs) (laughs) do you feel wealthy right now
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm bartering with the, uh, with the maple syrup we just picked up. Uh. Oh my
2: god! The post pandemic barter. I hadn't even thought of it. That's
5: amazing. What about you, JQ? Like, are you making a lot of pancakes over there? So I made more pancakes at the beginning of of mm-hmm. the pandemic, particularly when we were in lockdown, because yeah. I had more time. But now that you know we're back in office in a hybrid way, I'm back to my oatmeal or eggs situation. Mm-hmm. The last time I had a good maple syrup interaction, which sounds like a weird sentence to say, uh, I was in Canada. Oh. Like I went to Montreal <laughs> on vacation. This was obviously pre-pandemic. And I was just like, I'm going to buy a bunch of maple syrup. So I had no idea that I was, you know, stocking up for the maple syrup apocalypse
2: wow so you're both maple syrup preppers is what you're saying inadvertently yes (laughs) i've been eating a lot of oatmeal lately and i have been putting maple syrup on the oatmeal and it's lovely and i have been thinking like honey is not going to do the same thing you know like what would you sub maple syrup for
5: well okay using it in oatmeal is a good idea i currently boil the water with dates because that sweetens it yeah. Yeah. It's really good.
2: That sounds amazing. Lior, like, have you even thought about what you would sub maple syrup for, given the fact that you just have this amazing hookup that you haven't had to think twice about it?
1: I would just <laughs> stop eating. Um, I <laughs> I mean, uh, wow, boiling d- dates, that sounds amazing. That does um, sound really good. But, you know, I think if I was going to have to find something else for, like, pancakes or waffles, I would just go all the way in on the sugar and use, like, chocolate syrup and... <laughs> pretend just pretend like that's smear okay. nutella
2: all over it or something yeah
3: yeah
2: i do like the idea of picturing you just over there like drinking maple syrup with a straw because what's the big <laughs> deal <laughs> um okay so moving on i want to talk about tv something i've been thinking about a lot and it actually has come up in like a couple other conversations on your is my extremely low tolerance for tv shows about the pandemic um and it's popping up in different ways in different shows i mean the morning show i feel like really like went all in with pandemic content this time around it's happened in this is us um love life was a little sneakier where like most of season two was pandemic free but then i think it was like episode eight or nine they were like just kidding here's masks and lockdown um and it actually like really bothered me i was like i don't want to watch this stuff and I don't know. I think especially because there's this new show coming out on HBO next week. It's called Station Eleven. It's based on one of my favorite books. It's not about COVID, but it is about a pandemic that kind of like ends modern day life as we know it. And, you know, again, it's one of my favorite books. So I'm like, do I want to watch this or is it just going to like completely break my brain? Um, And I don't know. It just got me wondering like where y'all are on this spectrum of like, tolerating things about COVID? Like, are you more bothered by not seeing people wearing masks and like, in crowded spaces on TV? Or are you okay with, like, fictional things pretending like the pandemic never happened? Lior, what do you think?
1: Um, I'm okay with fictional things pretending like the pandemic never happened. It's about the world that's being presented to you. And I think one of the challenges of portraying COVID in a fictional way is my journalist brain just can't stop like right. it just won't go off. Right. Uh, so in particular with the morning show, I just like I kept thinking about where I was during the the same general time. And yep. The things that I enjoyed is is a uh, I don't know that that's a word that I would use for the morning show, but but I appreciate <laughs> the world that it builds and how it's slightly overlaps with ours, but it's you know it's able to to uh, to stand on its own as as kind of an immersive place that obviously is. is, uh, is kind of on the receiving end of, of experiences in our world.
2: Yeah. And I do think that makes sense in terms of like, we haven't yet had time to process it. So maybe it's not time to like have art about it yet either, you know?
1: Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I'm going to spend the rest of my life figuring out this, you know, this (laughs) two, three year period. (laughs) Like, you know, we've all, we're all continuing to navigate this in new ways every
2: day.
5: Yeah. What do you think, JQ? I think the exception would be Love Life. And this could be because of my crush on William Jackson Harper and well, the yeah. fact that I love 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 that series. But I like the fact that you know, it it's a it's a story that happens over the course of several years. And I like the fact that they it was just kind of a snapshot and I thought it really did a good job of showing the way the pandemic has really accelerated a lot of our relationships especially during Mm. lockdown and i like the fact that like at a certain point they move on from it they're like there is a future with no masks we don't talk about it again uh and as far as station 11 it is also one of my favorite books. I read it on a plane, and I at the time, I was like, wow, look at me, really, really getting in there with this content. <laughs> I'm very glad that this will be on HBO Max because I think, you know, I can just revisit this after some time has passed because mm. it hits a little close to home right now.
2: It really does. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you watched the the first trailer that came out probably like a month ago now. like. I cried like it got me and I was not expecting that. Lior, are you familiar with the book at all?
1: I'm not. Uh, would you mind telling me a little bit more about it? Oh, my it?
2: God. I mean, so it's it's by Emily St. John Mandel. It was super popular. It came out maybe in like 2015, I would say. And I mean, it's about a flu from China that kills like 90% of the population or something.
1: Yeah, I'm not about to watch that anytime
2: soon. <laughs> you know, so one show that is very much not doing the pandemic, which I'm super relieved by, is Succession. Now, Lior, you're all cut up with this one, right?
1: Yeah, but I feel like I should rewatch a lot of it because I have no idea what's going on all the time.
2: <laughs> you are not the only person I've talked to lately who said that. It's like, like all the business dealing stuff. I'm like, do we really need to keep track of all this? They'll explain <laughs> it when
5: we need to know it, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hope so.
5: <laughs> JQ, where are you in the show? I started on season one and... I was like, this is so hard to get into. Like, what is going on? Everyone I know, people who I love and respect, love this show. And they're like, you just got to keep watching. Like, it it hits its stride. And so I'm in episode around three or four. And I'm like, "Okay, we're in this thing. We're doing it now. And I think just because of time, I haven't been able to watch it like I want to. Mm. But after um, the picture of Roman and Jerry, the promotional photo, Mm. uh, I became familiar with the term slime puff be uh and here's the thing if there's shipping to be done i'm all in if people had told me hey you should watch this show because there's a weird ship for you to sail i'm mm-hmm. like let's do it let's go i will ride this thing to the wheels fall off so oh man you're in for such a treat because it gets real weird <laughs> I'm very excited to binge. I'm glad I get to binge this.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It is good for a binge. So, Lior, I feel like especially after the so the last episode of the season comes out this weekend, I feel like the last couple episodes watching, I've been like, is this fun anymore? Like, am I having a good time with this without any spoilers? What do you think? Like, where are you on the enjoyment spectrum of this show right now?
1: I mean I think I think the payoff has been coming the last couple episodes. Like everything in this season has started has sped up and kind of come to a a gradual head.
2: It's just so intense. It
1: is so intense. And there's some I mean Matthew McFadden as Tom oh my has God. really carried this season. Yes. He's he's so soulful and emotional and you could see his like just his his kind of spirit get chipped away at slowly and there's this sense that he is trying to hang on to some semblance of who he was and you know his his aspirational self of 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 who he wants to be in Mm -hmm. this place that is just filled with awful awful people
2: no kidding yeah that's a very good point yeah it is getting grim but you're right it's also just extremely fascinating like i definitely can't look away at this point there's no way well jq leor thank you both so much this was very fun
1: thank you for having us
2: it's been so great The end of 2021 is nigh, which means now is a great time to take a break, take stock, and catch up on all the best stuff of the year that might have flown under your radar. Today, we're going to talk about the best cookbooks of the year with our pal, Alex Beggs. She's a senior staff writer at Bon Appetit and a Slacker picnic correspondent here (laughs) on NerdET. Alex, hey!
3: Thanks for having me.
2: So, I don't know. Before we start on specifics, did you like notice any overarching themes in terms of cookbooks this year that you thought were noteworthy?
3: That's interesting. I've been thinking about how on my roundup, a lot of the books are coincidentally vegetarian, hmm. whereas like a few years ago, any vegetarian cookbook would probably say it in the, in the title Um, and the weeknight vegetarians, which is on my list, which is a great uh, very family-friendly cookbook um, is the only one, but there are other cookbooks on the list that just so happened to be vegetarian. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I didn't choose those intentionally. It just is maybe the way we- reflecting how we eat now. Um, and then there was also a handful of grain books, uh, grain and bean books. Like I know you just interviewed Abra who wrote Grist, which is an awesome book. Love, love, love yes. that book. And that was cool because it's like, it's funny to call it out as a trend because these ingredients- have been around longer than we have but but you can't deny when like, there's three grain books out this year what does that <laughs> say
2: about us yeah right so what are your criteria when you think about the best cookbook
3: um that's a good question i think uh because i am using them as a tool uh usefulness yeah. and readability and how realistic the recipes are so you know a lot of years chef And restaurant cookbooks come out and and sometimes they're beautiful coffee table books, but maybe not the most cookable because these are people who make really elaborate, fancy things. I don't know. It's pretty emotional too. Maybe I just have a response to some books more so than others. Mm, Very cool. Okay. So let's dive in.
2: Let's start with Italian American by Angie Rito and Scott Tachinelli. Tell me about this gorgeous book.
3: Yes. So, you know, it's like Italian American, you see pasta on the cover and you kind of think you know what you're going to get, but it really kind of knocked my socks off. It, it was unexpected.
2: So yeah, when I hear Italian American, I think like tomato sauce, cheese, pasta,
3: yeah. pretty much. And And they have the classics in there. And then they have a lot of really inventive, creative stuff that to me was just like, um, was really fun to flip through. And I probably flagged more recipes I wanted to make out of that than most other books. But hmm. again, maybe that's just me because I like uh, the word pepperoni a lot. <laughs> so um, and on our site, on com, we got the recipe for pepperoni rice stuffed mussels, which is like, Whoa. As, as it sounds like, come on, that just sounds so good. And they're famous for this I was trying to figure out how I was going to describe this. It's pinwheel lasagna and like imagine taking the lasagna long noodle and rolling it up like a cinnamon roll and and baking it instead of the whatever layers. Um, that's like their showstopper recipe. And there's lots of stuff like that in there. But the first thing on my list is polenta snickerdoodles. Like what does that sound?
2: Oh, yum. Okay. So, um, as you mentioned the coincidentally vegetarian thing, um, another book on your list is To Asia With Love. Yes. So with this one, this is by Hetty McKinnon. What do you think works about her approach to not eating meat?
3: She nails, I think, flavor above all. So mm. the sauces and just like the seasonings, I think vegetarian cooking or even cooking with vegetables that are milder tasting. I'm thinking of her like sesame tofu with broccoli that I make all the time. Those ingredients on their own aren't strong flavored. So they're going to carry the sauce and it's got to be awesome. And that's Mm -hmm. what she does so well. There's a lot of noodles in the book. So I think if you're noodle noodle head, you will you'll love it, but her recipes are very cookable. They're simple. It's it's the ingredient list. Isn't very long. The ingredients are chosen very intentionally. Like how can you pack the most punch with the fewest ingredients?
2: That's really nice because, yeah, sometimes, especially with vegetarian cooking, like if the list is too long, even that can be overwhelming in terms of like, oh, God, I need so much stuff just to make this one meal, you know?
3: Yeah. And sometimes there's a sub recipe. Oh, you've got to make this sauce and that Mm -hmm. sauce. And on the weekend, I'm down to do all that stuff. But I make her cashew udon with crispy mushrooms all the time because you got the udon in your freezer. You just kind of need a few vegetables. And all of her recipes are all very flexible and interchangeable.
2: So another one of your selections is Atabla by Rebecca Pepler, which I actually got on your like Instagram recommendation and I'm kind of obsessed with it. I've cooked yeah. a handful of things from it. Um, that chocolate pudding, I think it's just like one Ooh, of the most divine things ever. Yeah. I've made it probably like four times. <laughs>
3: Whoa. Yeah. And you know that, like, I feel like chocolate pudding, I wish that it could make a, a comeback, you know, it feels kind of retro, yes, but I totally. always, I want that all the time. And one thing
2: I love about that one in particular is like, she's funny and her sense of humor you can pick up on it throughout. And like, there's this one note in the pudding recipe where she's like, you could portion this out into like, cute little ramekins or whatever for eight servings. And then she goes, but let me ask you, do you like fun?
3: Yeah.
2: (laughs) I just think it's amazing. It's like, why wouldn't you eat pudding out of a giant bowl with all your favorite people, you know?
3: Oh my gosh. Yes. I love, love, love that book. I think it's really great. Maybe we associate French cooking in America with Julia Child and like stewing things, but it felt like fun and modern. And there are all these beautiful salads. I made the marinated lentils a lot. What else did you make from it? I made the roast chicken with prunes, which was lovely. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. I made the green shakshuka, which is also really nice. And like, yes, there's plenty of cheese in there. Like the baked camembert is amazing. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of really nice, like lovely and still rich vegetable dishes that you don't always see in a French cookbook because it's just like butter, bread, cheese. You're welcome. You know?
3: Yeah. Yep. So you also
2: in the list that you sent over, you sent over like a Thai line. Yes. (laughs) Two books that are tied, which is cheating. So this is technically the six best books, but I'm super into it. I support this cheating, Um, partly because these are two of my favorites. You mentioned Grist a little bit already. Um, But yeah, tell us about your your grain forward tie choices.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I love Grist. I mean, it changed the way I kind of meal prep, whatever that means to you yeah, um, totally. and how I cook at home and how I think about grains. And it taught me so many new techniques. You know, I wasn't frying lentils before. If you're not frying lentils, get on that. Um, <laughs> so I love that book. I think it'll really stand the test of time because she takes so much time and care to talk about who grows these ingredients. You know, mm-hmm. like, did you know what a seed cleaner was? That's an important part of the agricultural process and a beautiful way to appreciate the people behind the food we kind of buy mindlessly at the grocery store. Yeah, um, The recipes are great too. Uh, bacon vinaigrette, make it all the time but oh my God. Mother Grains is the other book I love. And I wrote about that earlier this year by uh, Roxana Julepat. We had her under that
2: earlier this we spring did. too. She was lovely. Yeah.
3: She's so funny. I love her. Her food is beautiful. I go to that more for the baking recipes. Oh, she has savory stuff too. I'm making her einkorn flour shortbread cookies for the holidays mm-hmm. this year. Again, I love her Tres Leche cake. It changed the way I thought about baking, which is like I don't know. Maybe that sounds kind of hyperbolic, but there's more to life than all-purpose flour.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, I don't know. I feel like so often the, the narrative around like spelt grain or whatever is like, it's better for you. So you should be using it. Right. And mother grains felt so much like here's what makes spelt really lovely. Here's where it can shine in a recipe. Here's why it makes a chocolate chip cookie really great or whatever, you know?
3: Yeah, it's flavorful. I think at the end of the day, the difference in your body is so minuscule. Like, are you kidding me? But Mm -hmm. um, it's nice to think that you're getting a little more fiber from a whole grain Flour, and if if that turns you on, that's cool. But it's truly that these things are flavorful, and you do notice a difference when you put a little spelt flour in your chocolate chip cookie. And there are some flowers that are even more flavorful, like buckwheat. Mm-hmm. Like now, I have a whole shelf in my fridge full of flowers, thanks to her, which drives my partner crazy, but I don't <laughs> care because <laughs> they make me happy. Those
2: sorghum peanut butter cookies are just like They're insane. Good. They're perfect. They're, They're so the good. perfect peanut butter cookie. Yeah. So last on your list is another baking one. Mm -hmm. Um, It's Cheryl Day's new book, right?
3: Yes. So Cheryl Day um, is pastry chef and the co-founder of Southern Restaurants for Racial Justice, which is a nonprofit that raises money to keep Black businesses afloat. She's active in... All of the things in Southern restaurant worlds, but this book is so packed with recipes, and similar to what I was saying about like seeing trends in books um, with the grains. I feel like in the past few years, I've seen maybe three Southern baking books uh, come out, but hers is most comprehensive and historical, and like meaning that it acknowledges the slave trade's impact on Southern baking, which mm-hmm. maybe other books don't because it doesn't fit in with like the sunny narrative they're doing, but, um, and in fact, Cheryl Day's great, great, great grandmother was enslaved and a baker. And many of these recipes come from her recipes. So there's, there's just that that underlying story and depth to it. And there's lots of amazing biscuit recipes. The first of which I'll point to are the scallion and cheddar cat head biscuits, named oh. because they are big as a cat's head. <laughs> it, come on. That's quite literally <laughs> catnip to me as <laughs> a cat lady. Picturing ear,
2: dough-shaped ears on the top of the yeah. biscuit.
3: <laughs> so this book has all of the cookies, all of the biscuits, all of the pies. It's just very thorough and packed full of deliciousness. And the other recipe I want to make from it are these jam filled cookies, almost kind of like a dumpling slash cookie. And oh my God. And again, she has a, a chicken shaped cookie cutter. And I was like, I, I think I need this. It's amazing.
2: Well, those all sound great. Thank you so much for the recommendations. And let me know if you make that chocolate pudding, because oh my God.
3: Always. Thanks for having me.
2: How many episodes of a show do you need to watch before you know for sure that it's good? We will find out in just a minute.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO Original Limited series.
2: There is a lot of stuff to watch out there. It seems like a new streaming platform is popping up every month. Everybody is making stuff, and some of it is legitimately great. But in a world where there's more content than ever before, you have to be strategic about what you're going to spend your time with. So how much of a show do you need to watch before you can decide whether it's actually good? The Atlantic's Shirley Lee has an idea about that. She recently wrote an article titled The Magical Episode 4 Theory,
4: and she is with us now. Shirley, hey. Hi. Okay, so four episodes, huh? Yeah, yeah. I've been getting a lot of questions for years now, you know, from friends being like, so when does this show get good? Right. What should I be watching? How long do I have to stick with it? And... First of all, it's such a subjective thing. You know, your stamina may vary um, and maybe you actually binge a whole season before you even know whether you like a show or not. (laughs) Um, But I landed on episode four over the years because I noticed as I was recapping TV shows, writing about TV shows, interviewing showrunners that, you know, behind the scenes, things kind of come together by episode three or four and that should translate to viewers as well, around the same time. So some of my favorite shows, For example, Lost Hmm. revealed this major key twist in its fourth episode, which informed kind of the show's overall, like, faith versus science mythology. Mm -hmm. Breaking Bad also had a really great fourth episode. You know, we could go far back. Alias, 24, comedies (laughs) like New Girl, Modern Family, all, like, (laughs) solid episode fours. Or maybe the grammar here should be episodes four. I was going to say, I like (laughs) episodes four. (laughs) Yeah. Um... You know, it, it doesn't work for every show because there are shows that only have like six episodes a season. So if you have to watch the episode four, you, have already covered two thirds of the show's <laughs> season. Right. Um, but the main idea here is that this gives viewers a chance to get a sense of what the writers are. We're going for mm-hmm. as they were trying to click as well this gives a chance for the cast also to come together and i don't think episode four is too heavy a lift you know at the most that's uh, a weekend of watching you know yeah <laughs> yeah totally
2: so you mentioned in your article that friday night lights was kind of the stimulus yeah. for this piece because it's on netflix <laughs> now
0: clear eyes full hearts can't lose.
2: I think that's a very strong pilot. Like, if you're not Mm -hmm. into it by the end of that episode, I don't know if you need to bother with three more episodes, you
4: know? (laughs) You're right. That's one of the shows that kind of catalyzed this whole examination because one of my close friends, like, a decade ago now was like, how long does this take to get good? Right, right. It's like if you don't think it's good yet, I, it's probably just not for you, right? Yeah, I don't know what to tell you yeah, cause um, it's good. Now what I say is, you know, give it four episodes. Huh.
2: Maybe it's not until episode four that you can see Tim Riggins shirtless. So it's that's that's <laughs> what'll really get people. Yeah, again, the reasons you're watching a show might be very exactly. different. <laughs> Another one that I thought of that did, I think, kind of defies this is Schitt's Creek, you know? Ooh,
4: yeah, yeah. When I was working on this, I was kind of like, the theory applies to a lot of shows. Yeah. And then you do have sitcoms that are so episodic that you don't necessarily get an arc across the first four episodes. Right. So instead, I don't know, the way I thought about comedies uh, was... Do I, is there a rhythm that I am liking that I feel like four episodes is also fair to give? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's hard. You know, here's, it's. this is why it's a theory. Oh, you totally. can't prove it.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, well, and I think the fact that like, I think it does universally work i think like the fact that there are exceptions doesn't mean it's not generally totally true you know
4: yeah yeah i mean i'll tell you this this like this kind of boosted my um oh boy my ego when it came to thinking about this episode four theory i was watching this interview with ted lasso's Mm -hmm. writers Mm -hmm. (laughs) and brett goldstein one of the writers and one of the stars yeah roy kent yes roy kent fuck it's a bad word, and why Oh, mind your own business, baby. You know, in the interview, he talked about how it was during the table read of the fourth episode that it, he felt like everything clicked. And I was like, see, there it goes. It applies to comedies as well. <laughs> oh, that's amazing.
3: Well,
2: Shirley, thank you so much for stopping by. This was very fun. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. For the rest of the month, we are going to do some of the best stuff of 2021. We've got books, podcasts, and TV shows covered, so keep an eyeball out for those coming out these next couple Fridays. We're really looking forward to it. And, of course, in the meantime, you can also sign up for our newsletter. It is full of really great stuff, links to newest episodes, including book club, and just general links to, like, recipes and books and other cool stuff. You would like it a lot, I bet. You can sign up for it if you go to wbez.org. Nerdette AF. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you next week.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen, Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series.